Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Again, page 770 in most of the seat Bibles. You know, this story, which, which Anne read this morning, um, where God's people cast lots to replace Judah after Judah suffers this gruesome death, isn't it kind of a strange story? I mean, you have to wonder, why is this story in the Bible? I mean, the last passage we looked at last Sunday stressed three times the importance of the Holy Spirit. We saw Jesus clearly tell the apostles, wait in Jerusalem until I send you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we're primed for that event, which is going to happen in chapter 2. The incredible event of, of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is dramatically and powerfully poured out. Why not get right to it? Why pause here for this sort of odd story about choosing a replacement for Judas who's betrayed Jesus? Why tell us that they had a meeting and then of all things, they flipped a coin, so to speak. They cast lots to decide who Judas's replacement would be. Why take time to introduce us to this guy, Matthias, who's chosen to replace Judas, when Luke will never even bother to mention Matthias again in the whole rest of the book of Acts? Why even tell this story? Is it to teach us how to conduct church meetings? How to select leaders? Should we all be casting lots today to pick who our leaders should be? Or is it a cautionary tale? Is it warning us about how not to pick leaders? Because a lot of people actually read it this way. They point out that aside from the original 11 apostles, the apostle who's the hero in the book of Acts is not Matthias. It's the apostle Paul. So they argue that Jesus chose Paul, not Matthias. And so Peter and the believers were on the wrong track when they picked Matthias. After all, Jesus had told them what? To wait for the Spirit. But what do they do instead? They do what we often do. We find it so hard to wait, so we do something. Instead of waiting for the Spirit to empower them and to guide them, they take matters into their own hands. They pick Matthias, and they get it wrong. Poor Matthias. Well, that interpretation does make for a good sermon, but I don't think it's actually what's going on in today's passage for three reasons. First, because Actually, I don't think it's a big deal that Matthias is not mentioned again in the book of Acts. When you think about it, none of the other apostles are mentioned again by name in the book of Acts except for Peter, James, and John. The other nine actually are not mentioned by name again at all. But this isn't because what the other apostles did, uh, it, it doesn't, sorry, it isn't because what... Uh, Let me try that again. (laughs) It isn't because they didn't do anything worth reporting. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not that they didn't do anything worth reporting, these other nine. It's just that Luke isn't telling their story. I I wish he did, don't you? Wouldn't you love to know? But he had limited space on his scroll that he's writing on, and so he chooses to tell us other things instead. Second, there's absolutely no hints in this story, that what Peter and the others are doing is wrong or misguided. To the contrary, Luke tells us that they are prayerful about it. They uh, consult scripture on it. 
And there's not a hint that God disapproves of what they do or that they're reading the scripture wrong when it leads them, excuse me, to choose someone to replace Judas. Third, I I don't think they're wrong because as we'll see, casting lots was actually an important and accepted way of making decisions for God's people at that time. In the Old Testament, God had his people cast lots in particular, if you read the Old Testament, for two purposes. One, to choose land, who would get which land, and two, to choose ministry, to decide which Levites would minister in God's house. And as we're actually going to see, today's story has to do with both land and ministry. Interesting. We'll get to that later. Well, if the story is not here to tell us how not to select leaders, then why in the world is this story here? Well, let's walk through the story together and see if we can see what it has to teach us. The 11 remaining apostles have just been out at a place called the Mount of Olives. And there, we saw last Sunday, they saw Jesus leave them. They saw Jesus ascend to heaven, born out of their sight by a cloud. And, and after Jesus left, they, they did exactly what Jesus told them to do before he left. They returned to Jerusalem, and then they wait there for Jesus to send them the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus told them to do. They go back to the upper room, Luke tells us, where they're staying, probably a large guest room because they're all from out of town, remember? They're from Galilee, not Jerusalem. And so some hospitable and wealthy follower of Jesus in Jerusalem who has a large guest room is hosting them. Which, by the way, if God has blessed us with resources, this is part of our call and our responsibility to use those resources for God's people and for God's purposes. And so some generous person is doing this. They're in this person's upper room. And then Luke tells us who's there in the upper room. And he takes the time to list the names of all 11 apostles. Now, why list their names? Because the apostles are important. Each one is important. They are important uniquely and individually. Leadership among God's people is not just a slot to be filled a warm body to stick into a position. We're not interchangeable parts. We're people, and each person is a unique gift. And so Luke tells us who these specific unique people are. He also tells us that they're not there alone, that along with the apostles are some of the women who were disciples of Jesus. Back in Luke's gospel, his first book, Luke has told us who these women were back in Luke chapter 8. He told us about Mary Magdalene. He told us about Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the, the manager of Herod's household, and about Susanna and many others. And he says these women were helping to support the group out of their own means. In other words, these women, some of them at least, were wealthy women. They were important women. For sure, uh, the wife of Chusa, Joanna, manager of Herod's household, Perhaps one of these women owns this house in the upper room they're staying in. We don't know for sure. Then Luke adds as well that Mary, Jesus' mother, is there. And surprisingly, Jesus' brothers are there as well. Now, most of Jesus' family had not believed in him while he was alive. They thought he was crazy or something. But I guess that Jesus' resurrection had changed their mind. 
In fact, 1 Corinthians tells us in particular that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his brother James. And we're going to meet James later in the book of Acts. So it's not just the 11 apostles here in the upper room, but there's a number of women and there's Jesus's own family. And what are they doing? They're joining together constantly in prayer, Luke tells us. And the Greek word here that Luke uses that's translated in some translations constantly, it can also be translated devotedly or earnestly. It's not necessarily that they're spending every second praying, but rather it means that this is what they're focused on. This is their main priority during this time. They're waiting. And how are they waiting? While they're praying. They are talking to God. They are focusing on God. They are asking God to send his spirit, no doubt, because that's what they're waiting for. And it's in that context of gathering and waiting and praying that Peter gets up. He stands up. Now, Peter just recently had denied that he even knew Jesus three times. But then Jesus had appeared to Peter after his resurrection and offered Peter grace and forgiveness. You can read that story in John's gospel. And grace, when you receive it, has a way of really changing you and offering you a new beginning and a fresh start. Many of us have experienced that, right? And giving us fresh courage and a new focus. And that has happened to Peter. He has been touched by Jesus' grace. And as a result, he's back leading. He's taking the initiative again like regular old Peter. And then Luke tells us just in a passing remark, oh yeah, and the group is 120 now, by the way. And we're like, 120? (laughs) Where did all these extra people come from? Evidently, after Jesus' death and resurrection, as the dust is settling, there are others coming out of the woodworks. They're finding one another. They're joining the group. Something new is beginning to birth here. There, there are, um, or rather, these are all people, no doubt, who, who had either been touched by Jesus during his life and, and had come to follow him before his death or at his death, or perhaps had seen him raised afterwards or heard the news of his resurrection. And and like his family, they're finally convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And so this group, regardless of of how how they have come, they they have come together, 120 now, who are committed to Jesus. A group about the size of our church. A small group, but, but they're a growing group. And as the story goes on, Luke is going to keep giving us updates as this group grows and grows. I also think Luke mentions 120 here. I mean, he could have rounded down to 100. Of course, who rounds down when they're counting, right? But, but anyway, I think he mentions 120 because in the Bible, the number 12 is the number of God's people. And the Bible will often play with the idea of multiples of 12 as well. So in the Old Testament, you have 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, you have 12 apostles. Although right now there's 11, but that's about to change. And so now here we have 10 times 12. We have 120 followers of Jesus. And Peter gets up and he speaks to them. And he brings up the painful topic of Judas, who was one of them and who betrayed Jesus. And he says, you know... This terrible thing that happened was actually foretold by Scripture. Now, during Jesus' life, Peter and the other apostles were fairly clueless about how Scripture foretold anything related to Jesus. But now, in retrospect, it's beginning to become clear to them. 
We saw last week after Jesus' resurrection, he had spent time with Peter and the other apostles showing them how so many scriptures had been fulfilled in him. Well, uh, Peter now is about to share two of these fulfillments, which he's coming to recognize are there in the Old Testament. And, And these are further proof and they're further encouragement to Peter and to us that Scripture is what Peter says it is here in verse 16, spoken by the Holy Spirit. Through the mouth of David and other human authors, yes, but as these human authors spoke, Peter says, the Holy Spirit inspired them to foretell what would happen, in this case, in the future. In this particular case, it's about Judas. God was not taken off guard when Judas betrayed his son. No, God foresaw it, and God foretold it. Notice what else Peter mentions about Judas. This is important. He says in verse 17, Judas was one of our number and shared in our ministry. One of our number Numbers are important to Luke, and and they're important for this story. We already saw 120 followers of Jesus, and there were originally 12 apostles, and Judas, Peter says, was one of that number. Now Judas is gone, and there are only 11. Uh, Peter also says, Judas shared in our ministry. And this word shared, which in the NIV translation, is literally Received a lot in. If we could put the the slide up. Received a lot in. This language of of receiving a lot is going to be very important for the story. So let, let me pause and explain this. Casting lots was used in the Old Testament to decide what share or portion someone would receive. I already mentioned two main Old Testament applications of this. First, when the Israelites first entered the promised land... Lots were cast to decide which portion or share or lot of the land each tribe would receive. Except for the Levites, incidentally, who got no lot, and that's the language the book of Numbers uses, they got no lot because their ministry before God was their lot. Then second, when the Levites took turns ministering before the Lord in God's house, each time it was time for a shift change, Lots were cast to decide whose turn it was to do that ministry. So this language that Peter is using here, it's rich Old Testament language. Judas received a lot in their ministry, among their number. But then Judas betrayed Jesus. You can put the slide down. And then Luke inserts a parenthesis here to to fill us in on something that's important that Peter and the others already knew um, but, but we don't know. And so Luke tells us, and that is what happened to Judas. Judas received money to betray Jesus. And with that money, a field was purchased, land, perhaps a farm, perhaps a homestead. The Greek word used here can mean any of those things. And on that property, Luke tells us, Judas died. And, and he died in a shameful and gruesome way. You see, it was very important in that culture to have a proper burial. Super important. Not to die and to be exposed to the elements without burial. That was absolutely shameful. Almost, it was to be cursed. But Judas died on his property and he falls there and his body bursts open and his intestines all spell out. Luke chooses to tell us that. Which likely means that Judas has been dead for a while, 
or had been dead for a while before he fell. Matthew tells us that Judas hung himself. And, and so maybe he hung there for some time, decomposing, and then he falls, and his body bursts open, and he lays there rotting on the ground, unburied on this field. Gross, right? <laughs> In that culture, completely revolting and shameful, where proper burial is so important, so much so that that place all around Jerusalem gained a nickname, Field of Blood. Matthew tells us that the, eventually it became a cemetery, a very unclean place in that culture. Because you can be sure after what happened to Judas there, nobody in that culture would want to buy that field. <laughs> and so thinking of that end that Judas met, a psalm comes to Peter's mind. Psalm 69, which has a line, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. May his property become empty, abandoned, nothing but an unclean cemetery. That's what happened to Judas. And Peter sees it as the fulfillment of God's word. Psalm 69, which Peter's quoting here, is, is about a betrayer. It's about an enemy and a persecutor of David, God's chosen king at the time the psalm was written. And David in the psalm is complaining and he's railing against his enemy, and he's saying, may his place be deserted. And now Peter sees, hey, there's a greater fulfillment to this. Because who's the even greater of God's chosen kings? Who experienced an even greater betrayal? Jesus, by Judas. And look what happened to Judas. It was just what David expressed should happen to his enemy. Well, then Peter quotes a second psalm. May another take his place of leadership. Peter here is quoting Psalm 109. Another similar psalm where David's praying again that one of his enemies, his persecutors, would lose their position, lose their influence, and another would take it. And again, Peter sees an even greater fulfillment in Judas's fate. And he says, we need to replace Judas. We, another needs to take his place of leadership, this enemy of God's king. Judas was one of our number. He was one of the 12, but he's gone. And, and now we're 11. Let someone else take his place. We need a new 12. That's how the Jewish mind thought. Or again, numbers were important. The, the number of the people of God was supposed to be 12. And, and if we've got 11, then we're incomplete. So let someone else take Judas's place. After all, what's about to happen? Jesus is about to fill his people up with the Holy Spirit. But the people aren't all there. One is missing. Judas's lot, Judas's share is empty. Let's replace it, Peter says, so God's people, God's house, so to speak, can be full when the Spirit comes to fill it. So the group agrees, and they they nominate two people who fit the criteria that Peter suggests. And then they ask God to decide. Now notice the, the criteria that, that Peter offers. It's someone who can be a witness. Someone who can be a witness. You might remember we saw last Sunday that Jesus gave his people a, a laser-focused mission, right? He, it was, he, he gave them the mission, the purpose, to be witnesses to him. And Peter says, we need an apostle, which remember from last week means a sent one. We need an apostle who has witnessed everything about Jesus. 
Someone who was there from day one when John the Baptist came until the very end, just recently when Jesus ascended. And most importantly, verse 22, someone who can become a witness with us of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominate two men who who fit the bill, who meet the criteria. Both men saw it all. They witnessed it all. They were there with Jesus from beginning to end. But experience and knowledge are fine. But what about the heart? Well, God is the best judge of the heart. And so the believers pray. God, you're the knower of hearts. It's fine that we've nominated these two men. They, they check the boxes from our human perspective, our human wisdom. But you pick the one that you've chosen. You know the hearts of these two men. And then these last two verses in the story are very interesting. And it, it doesn't come through clearly in every English translation. So listen as I translate the Greek literally. And Josiah, maybe we can put the next slide up. They prayed that God would show them which of the two should receive the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas transgressed or left to go to his own place. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias. Now notice the language here. Place, ministry, lot. The biblical writers love to play with words to make a point. And in this case, it's a powerful contrast because lots are cast And remember in verse 17, it's up there still on the slide, Judas had a lot in the ministry of apostleship. But now the lot has fallen to Matthias, and he receives this place of ministry. Because Judas transgressed and went to his place, which is a field, a property, which turns out to be a cemetery. Again, I think it's drawing here on the the Old Testament tradition of of lots being used and being cast to divvy up land and lots also being cast to divvy up ministry. Judas had a lot in the ministry, but he gave it up for money, which was then used to purchase land. And that choice didn't turn out well for him, to, to say the least. The place that he chose turns out to be death. By contrast, Matthias gets the lot cast for him, and he takes Judas' place in the ministry. Interesting, a little later in the story, we're going to see others doing just the opposite of what Judas did. We will see, um, so, so Judas, right, he gets money for betraying Jesus, and with it, land is purchased. And that's what he has at the end. Later, we're going to see others selling land, for money, and they're going to be giving that money to Jesus and to Jesus' purposes, the purpose of witness and God's people. This is all subtle, but, but this is how the biblical writers love to work, especially when they're telling stories. They're not preachy very often. They're artists, and they weave their points in into the artistry of their storytelling. But I think there's a contrast of priorities here that Luke is drawing by the words that he chooses and the contrasts that he's making. Which is more important to us? Ministry, or sorry, money and land, or ministry and witness? Which is more important? Judas had a lot in ministry and witness, but he chooses money and land instead. And it turns out to be his death, or it turns out to be death. And so Matthias gets the lot in ministry and witness instead. 
There's a, there's a lot more here than first meets the eye. All right, you can take the slide down, Josiah. But, but what's the point of it all? What makes this strange story worth for Luke to tell? Well, I think it's this. I think it's that, that in this story, we see that Christ is restoring his new people for empowered witness. Christ is restoring his new people for empowered witness. Remember, we saw last Sunday that Christ ascended to heaven to rule as Lord of all. And the way Christ begins to rule looked like three things down here on earth we saw last Sunday. First, Christ chose a people. Second, he gave them a laser-focused purpose to be witnesses. And third, he promised them power to enable them to fulfill that purpose, that mission. Now, in today's story, we see Christ restoring that people. Again, this has to do with the importance in the Bible of the number 12 as representing the people of God. Jesus had promised his apostles, incidentally, back in Luke 22, it also is in Matthew, he he told them, one day you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 represents the fullness of God's people. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 thrones. Christ is restoring his new people. As Peter and the others pray, as they reflect on scripture, as they anticipate that the Holy Spirit is about to come on God's people to fill them up, they say, hey, there's supposed to be 12. Christ chose 12 and and he wants there to be 12, but, but we're down to 11. One throne is empty. And scripture foretold that this missing spot should be filled. And what's that spot for, at least in the lifetime of the apostles? Not self-benefit. Not to buy a nice farm to retire on. Not any of those things, but rather the spot is for witness. And Peter is learning fast, because remember, just, just days before we saw last Sunday, the apostles were still hoping Jesus would restore the kingdom to Israel immediately, that there would be 12 tribes again in the land, free from Roman oppression, with Jesus as the Jewish king and the apostles ruling the 12 tribes on 12 thrones. You're sure that that promise stuck with them. But now, how Peter's perspective has changed. He's realized that his role as an apostle at this point in Christ's plans, it's not political power. It's not personal enrichment like Judas sought. It's to be a witness to Christ. As we saw last Sunday in verse 8, to witness to the people of Israel in in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then beyond Israel to the very ends of the earth. Christ is restoring his new people for empowered witness. So now, once again, there are 12, not 12 tribes in the land, but 12 apostles, 12 witnesses, leaders and representatives of the 120 people who make up God's new people at this moment in time. And we'll see as the story continues, it's this whole group who will be witnesses, not just the 12 apostles, but the apostles are leaders, they're examples, they're representatives. And now that their number is complete, we're about to see that the power can come the Holy Spirit can come to fill them and to equip them for that mission. And uh, that will happen as we turn over to Acts chapter 2 in the next couple weeks. So what does this story have to say to us today? I don't think it's a practical manual on how to elect leaders or how not to elect them. 
Um, I think it's about our identity as God's people. Simply put, it, it tells us who we are if we believe in Jesus. Because we are the continuation of what began in that upper room so long ago. We're the unfolding, we're the continuing of what began with the original 12 and the original 120. We're the new people of God whom Christ is is forming. Christ has been faithful to continue what he began there. Christ is restoring his people for empowered witness. And we are that people. And so we too have been called to continue that ministry of empowered witness. May we continue to do that together. Let's pray as we close. God, thank you for your word, for the amazing, great story, great narrative that you tell, which shapes us. It lets us know who you are. It shapes our perspective. It shows us what you're doing in the world, and it shows you who we are in that big story, in that big mission. I pray, um, I just recognize so much that we need more of your Holy Spirit's empowerment to live up to the calling and the identity you've given us. And so I pray that um, you'd give us a fresh sense of our identity and that um, your Holy Spirit would come more and more among us to make us more into the people you want us to be. Amen.